Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is music as a catalyst for human transformation. My guest is Dr. Constance Scharf, a psychologist and also vice president for business development of a nonprofit organization called Rock to Recovery. She is author of Meeting God at Midnight, a book of poetry, also Ending Addiction for Good, the groundbreaking, holistic, evidence-based way to transform your life. And she is co-author with Rescuer of Rock to Recovery, Music as a Catalyst for Human Transformation. Constance is based on the West Coast, and now I will shift to the internet video. Welcome, Connie. It is a real pleasure to be with you today. It's great to be with you, too. You are the vice president of Rock to Recovery, a nonprofit organization, and I was amazed to learn that you actually are currently operating in, uh, I guess, over a hundred facilities around the United States and I presume outside of the country as well. Yeah, it's actually, it's pretty exciting for us. Uh, we are in over a hundred facilities throughout the U.S. Um, and, uh, we work primarily in four states in, uh, California, Oregon, Washington, and Tennessee. Um, however, we do virtual groups across the country and we have just started, um, our first, uh, regular international groups. We've done international groups. We have a contract with the Department of Defense um, to serve the Air Force Wounded Warrior uh, Program. And so we've worked internationally with them in Germany. But now we actually have regular rock to recovery groups in Thailand. And we should start very soon in South Africa. It's very exciting what you're doing. And, and what impressed me the most is that you're working with some of the most difficult cases imaginable. In fact, as I read your own description of how you got involved in, in the program, uh, I, I would say you came from a, a traumatic childhood yourself. Your own situation was an extremely difficult one, and uh, music has served you in a very positive way. So you're a great representative for the uh, principle uh, that the organization stands for. Yeah. So where I come from, um, prof let's look at professionally first. My professional interest is in complementary therapies that assist in the treatment of trauma and addiction. And trauma and, and addiction very often go hand in hand. I would say very often addiction is actually a symptom of, of trauma, particularly complex PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, the reason I got into this field is because I do come from a, a tremendously traumatic um, childhood. Um, people like me don't usually make it. We usually end up dead, um, either by suicide or overdose. Um, and yet I became, a, you know, an internationally recognized researcher in my field. And, and, and so I, I really, it is important to me 
that I reach a hand back and say, hey, actually, you can have a different life than what you were raised for. You can um, overcome traumas. And so I personally would apply when I was doing my research on complementary therapies, I would apply whatever I learned to myself. So I was looking for therapies that really have very few side effects, right? If you write a song and it doesn't go very well, what happens? You don't finish the song. The song isn't very good. You're not going to, you know, burn the world down. You're not going to ruin your health with, with what we do in Rock to Recovery. And so, um, I was applying these therapies to myself. But when I saw what happened with music, in particular with Rock to Recovery, I left the position that I was at, um, before the end of the year, uh, to come over to Rock to Recovery. So what we're talking about are people who are dealing with opium addictions, methadrine addictions, uh, people who have suffered uh, sexual abuse in childhood uh, or physical abuse in childhood, people who are uh, just barely hanging on. Uh, if at all, to a normal life. People who are institutionalized, Some sometimes, uh, I mean, in the old days, people used to spend their lives in these institutions. Now that's hardly even possible. Yeah, it's not possible. And there are some people, not with not with addiction um, uh, or, or with trauma, in my opinion, but, you know, there are some there are some disorders that really do need long term care that long term care is no longer available. And that was done away with during the Reagan administration. It's, a, it's been a long time ago. Now, um, you don't really generally get long term psychiatric commitments. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of people don't need them. I mean, they, they certainly can be abused, but also people who do need them can't often get them. So I work at, um, and with Rock to Recovery, we work with people who have significant trauma or substance abuse, whatever substance, you know, the still the most abused substance is, uh, continues to be alcohol. Um, but alcohol, opioids, methamphetamine, um, all the things that we see, um, at, uh, abused. Uh, we also work with eating disorders and, and disorder, you know, disordered eating. We deal with, uh, trauma. We deal with me- mental health issues, schizoaffective disorders, schizophrenics. So we have a wide range of people, but it's, a, you know, mostly what we deal with are people who've had something really difficult happen to them. And we help them to reframe that in a way that is oriented towards growth rather than oriented towards, um, destruction, right? Self-destruction. And we walk with them in the dark places. That's really what music can do. Well, one of the things that has impressed me about rock music in particular is that it creates a space where the musicians have social permission to get in touch with pretty much every negative emotion. Yeah. So, in, in any songwriting, and you actually see this with um, hip hop and rap as well. Um, one of our, uh, in, in our book, Rock to Recovery, um, Music as a Catalyst for Human Transformation, Brandon Jordan talks about um, his experience with, with rap and hip hop. And that was when he was growing up, and he's in his early 40s now, when he was growing up, that that was the music that was talking about growing up in a home without a father. 
So we see it in a lot of different genres of music. We see it in country music too, right? Country is like, you know, everything went wrong. The tractor broke down. My, you know, my, my wife left me, you know, the dog died, all the things. So it isn't just rock music. Um, and we use whatever music the clients want. And so, and they're different. You're, you're correct in saying there are different types of music that, um, both appeal to a different audience, right? A different, different demographics that we work with and also that lend themselves to a type of expression. So for example, with the uh, Air Force Wounded Warrior Program and with our veterans groups in the VA hospitals, very often they will choose metal. They will choose very um, aggressive, angry music to go with aggressive angry lyrics. And we have some beautiful uh, metal songs that have been written by those groups. The younger people tend to choose um, to choose hip hop and rap and spoken word and to really, um, it's not so much about the music as about the lyrics um, in those cases. So there's a wide variety. We should define for our viewers a little more what the program is about. Uh, for example, we haven't explained that we're talking about people who are non-musicians. These are not professional performers. These are just people who, who are dealing with their own inner issues and they're brought together in a group to uh, write and perform music. Yeah, so that was what was so exciting for me. So I was working at a very high-end um expensive, read high end is expensive, um, addiction treatment facility as the director of research in Malibu, California. And so, um, I would go to the, mostly I went around the world working with different researchers and bringing back best practices to the facility. But what I, on this day, one day a year, um, I would go to Malibu. I, I lived remotely and uh, I would go to Malibu and do continuing education for our psychotherapists. And I happened to be there on that day having lunch and Sonny Mayo, whose story is in our book, also one of our musicians walked up to me and said, would you, uh, you know, would you like to see my music group? Because everybody knew that I was interested in complementary therapies, that that's what I did. And I was like, yeah, of course I want to. But I also wanted to go because I thought this is a joke, right? I thought, how is it that they could, this guy, even though I knew he was quite a good musician, I knew the bands that he had played in um, when he was still touring. I was like, how is it that this guy thinks he can write and record a song in an hour with non-musicians who are in detox, right? Because the next group that he had these people were in in detox. And uh, I thought this is going to be a tremendous train wreck. And uh, I want to see it. I want to see that happen. And so <laughs> I went to the group. And, uh, you know, there were, I don't know, maybe seven or eight, nine um, individuals in the group. One was, uh, they were all very heavily medicated for detox. Uh, one was so heavily medicated, she started to go on the nod and fall out of her chair. Sonny never stopped playing. He just reached over and, and uh, you know, propped her up so she didn't fall out of her seat. And at the end of an hour, they wrote a song. And it was decent. I mean, they weren't going to win a Grammy, but it was good. And it expressed, I think what impressed me so much is it expressed what they were going through. But the clincher for me was the next day as I was going to the airport, before I went to the airport, I was going to give a presentation to the clients about uh, 
addiction and, and, rec- and early recovery and so forth. And at the very, um, uh, expensive treatment centers, you get, you have more privileges at, at lower cost treatment facilities. They take your phones away at the very expensive ones. You get to keep your phone, right? Cause you don't want people to complain. Well, every evening rock to recovery, uh, we upload all of our songs to the, to SoundCloud so that next morning, the individuals who had been in the different groups were walking around and saying, Hey, we named the band. So the, the bands, the song gets a name, the band gets a name. So the individuals were walking around saying, Hey, did you hear the song, the new song by raw oysters? No. Did you hear the new song by folding chair? And they were sharing their music right then. That's when I knew I would work with rock to recovery because people in early recovery from addiction, nobody had more than two weeks in the group that I saw clean. Right. And, uh, they haven't done anything that they're proud of. They haven't finished anything recently. They don't feel good about themselves. And they certainly aren't going to share a creative project, right, that they did in rehab with someone else. And yet here they were doing exactly that. And that's what I was so impressed by, that non-musicians, I, you know, every now and again, a musician comes into the group, right, or someone who's had some training and it's great. But by and large, you know, probably not about 98% of the people that we work with are non-musicians, have no training in music at all. And it doesn't matter because it's not about your musicianship. It's about how you create an expressive environment that has support so that people can get out the things that they normally couldn't talk about. The subtitle of your book, Rock to Recovery, is Music as a Catalyst for Human Transformation. The word catalyst is very interesting in in this regard because it suggests that these people are going through an intense therapeutic process. The music is the allows the process to be successful, but the music itself is not the therapy. Well, the music is a, is a therapy. But here's, I, I want to be super clear about something. Writing songs does not cure addiction. Writing songs does not cure trauma. If that was the case, just on its own, right? You're not feeling so well. You want to write a song. It might help you feel better in the short term. It is not curative. And I say that because, you know, when we see so many of our great musicians dying of overdose, dying of suicide, dying of, you know, uh, from Kurt Cobain to, um, you know, Janis Joplin back in the day, Jimi Hendrix, Chris Cornell, I mean, on and on and on, the list is long. But as part of, and this was the research that I did back when I worked at the addiction treatment facility, as part of a larger therapeutic process, these complementary therapies, music and um, uh, acupuncture and breath work and yoga and so forth, they become, they have a synergistic effect when they're used together and they become more than the sum of their parts. And that to me is very, very exciting. And so that is um, what we do with Rock to Recovery is we we use music. Now, music specifically does some very interesting things. The first is it dumps a whole bunch of feel-good chemicals in your brain, dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. So people feel better after their groups because you're talking about people whose who's, you know, uh, uh, neurochemistry is off. It's, it's usually almost shut down because we've been using substances to make our brain feel the way we want to feel. And so 
now they come in and they get high off of the group. Now you've had this experience. If you've had a bad day and you're in the car and you're listening to the radio and you hear a little bit of your own carpool karaoke, right? A song you like comes on the radio and you sing it like you don't care. Now, right, you feel better. And you're like, oh yeah, the traffic isn't so bad. My boss isn't such a schmuck, whatever. Now imagine if your, you know, uh, brain chemistry was, was really struggling and you get that same boost, right? We go from in, in the car, we go from here to here in rock to recovery because they're, you know, so, uh, uh, neurochemically uh, reduced. They go from here to here and they get high. Now what that does, particularly in a drug treatment program is it keeps them engaged. People tell us every single week. We work with about 30,000 people a year. People tell us every single week, I stayed in treatment because, or I engaged in treatment because of Rock to Recovery. I was going to quit, but Rock to Recovery is tomorrow. I'm going to at least stay till Rock to Recovery. And it keeps them engaged in treatment and that improves our outcomes, right? The longer someone engages in treatment, the longer, uh, the, the better the outcomes are. The other thing is we provide a community of support because Treatment is awful <laughs> in a certain way, right? You're on your last nerve. You're not feeling very well. And then you have to listen to Joe and Larry and Susan, right? Drone on and on about their mother, their mate, their child, their boss, their whomever. And you're like, if I hear Joe talk about his, you know, uh, husband one more time, I'm going to rip his throat out. That's how it feels going process group after process group. Rock to Recovery builds a community of support. Everybody puts something into the lyrics. Everybody puts something into the music. We do this together. It is our song and we build community. Plus, it's fun. Viewers of the New Thinking Aloud channel, at least the regular viewers, will know that I love karaoke. I've actually posted a couple of videos of myself singing karaoke, so I can appreciate the high that, that you get from singing. It's, it's like getting high without drugs. Music alone can do that for, for people. I'm sorry, you literally are getting high. Your brain is releasing chemicals when you sing. Your brain releases chemicals that make you feel good. That's what a high is. You are literally getting high when you sing. It's one of the reasons why choirs are so popular. People like to sing in the choir. Think about why would you be in the church choir? Not only do you get to connect to whatever higher power you believe in, but also singing makes you high. So you have the praise and the intention of the prayer and you have the neurochemical high of the singing. We work on those same principles in Rock to Recovery. Back in the 1970s, uh, when I was a Berkeley student, I had set up a program. It got funded by the chancellor uh, to deal with drug abuse on campus. And the basic idea was there are all these alternative ways of getting high without drugs. And those days it was yoga, which was very new at the time, and meditation and holistic uh, medicine, organic food, all of those things seem to create a lifestyle uh, that work for people. So you're really working along those same lines, it would seem. Very much so. And that's where my broader research, um, you know, that I was working on a few years ago came in. So with yoga, it's not the poses, it's the breath 
That's what we've learned. And there's different types of breathing techniques that give us different outcomes. And if you look in something like the Upanishads, you know, we have that information, the, the Vedas, really more in the Vedas. You know, we have that information about what works. Or if you look in modern um, uh, uh, writings, 3HO, Yogi Bhajan, talks about very specific efforts in yoga, particularly with breath, that uh, give you specific outcomes. The, the breath of fire. It's interesting that you mention that because we actually practice Yogi Bhajan's Kundalini Yoga at the Health Information Program at Berkeley 50 years ago uh, when I got involved with it. So, you're working with all of these modalities together and I, I guess two things. One is, is that it encourages people to stick with the program that they might otherwise drop out of. But the other thing I suppose it's important to recognize, and you acknowledge this in your book, it doesn't always work for everyone. You've lost some of your best people in, in spite of all this. So, nothing has a 100% success rate. And the, you know, I think this is really important for, for anyone listening and anyone who struggles with or loves someone who struggles with an addiction problem is that our normal state as addicts, and I say our because I've been sober for over 20 years, our normal state is high. That is what I do. My, where I, my, you know, brain wants to be is loaded. And I, you know, uh, have come through 12-step program in addition to working, you know, with a lot of additional resources. Um, but, you know, people relapse. They do. Even who people who are doing their best work sometimes relapse. And what happens is that we have something comes up and we don't have that moment between the oh my God, the thing that fixes this is a drink. For me, it's alcohol. The thing that fixes this is a drink and picking up a drink. So let me give you um, an example from my own life. I was um, staying at a friend's house. This is about three years ago. So I had 20 years sober at the time. And um, I was on my way to a funeral and uh, I was going to the airport. And before I went to the airport, I thought, I'm going to get a piece of cheese. This is a true story. I'm going to get a piece of cheese because I'm hungry. And then I'll drive over to the airport. This was in Los Angeles. And I opened the refrigerator. Again, I'm staying at a friend's house. And they're not problem drinkers. So they had a little beer in there. And I opened it up. I said, oh, a beer would be nice with my cheese. I shut the refrigerator door. I'm in shock. I went and sat on the couch and I was like, oh my God, I suddenly wanted to drink. Where did that come from? So I called friends and I said, I, I just almost picked up a beer. Well, what was happening is I didn't want my friend to be dead and I certainly didn't want to go to her funeral, right? And I had that moment of, I could drink a beer and then I won't have to feel these feelings because addiction really is about, I don't want to feel these feelings. And I had that moment and my friend was actually in a 12-step meeting, came running out, picked up the phone, let's talk, let's get you safe. I'm like, no, I'm already safe. Not everyone has that moment. Sometimes people open it up and they're like, oh yeah, beer will fix this, glug, glug, and I'm drinking before I even know what's going on. And that's really what we think happened with um, Christian. 
Um, Christian was one of our rock to recovery brothers, you know, one of our musicians and, um, he'd had some very tremendous, um, physical problems. Um, and he had relapsed. Uh, we didn't know it. Um, we think it probably started with cough medicine that he was prescribed for his really horrific cough in his autopsy. We found out he had late stage emphysema and he was, he was dying. Um, we didn't know that. We just knew he smoked a lot and had a bad cough. Right. And, um, but what we think, and again, we don't know, but what we think is that, um, he relapsed on her- with heroin on Friday and by Tuesday he was dead because these drugs are so strong now. You know, we thought he had fentanyl, um, in a system he did not. It was because of the emphysema that he overdosed. Um, but it just takes people right out. And so for me, you know, one of the things I like to do is remind people that recovery is a state of grace. I, 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 I truly, I mean, I, I stutter because I truly don't know how I was gifted with this. I did what was suggested to me. I did, you know, all the therapies and I've had tremendous support. You know, I've done music and I've done uh, traditional psychotherapy and I've had 12 step programs and I've had all the things. And, and I've been graced with sobriety because I should be dead. I should have died around 25 and, uh, I'm going to be 49 next month. You know, I should be dead and I'm not because of the support that I've gotten and the therapies that I've had. And as as a result of that, you've been able to contribute to the lives of thousands of other people, which I should think also helps you keep going. It does. And, you know, I was doing something. This is interesting. So I was doing something different when I was in grad school. I was actually uh, looking at international development. I, I trained to be a, um, an evaluator of international development projects. So, you know, tree planting and, and uh, goat projects and all that kind of stuff. And I was sober. Oh, gosh, I want to say like eight, nine years. And I was miserable. I was suicidal. There was nothing that supported my trauma recovery. I did everything that was suggested and nothing helped. And uh, the uh, men and women were, were really coming back. Uh, our, our veterans were really coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan in numbers at this point. And uh, they weren't getting sober. And a number of them were killing themselves. And a young Marine, he was 23, he had wanted to have a career in the Marines. He had been wounded, I believe, in Iraq, if I'm remembering correctly. But he had been in both theaters, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, and um, was disabled. Walked with a cane, discharged, medical discharge from the from the Marines, and he killed himself. And he had a wife and a newborn, and he killed himself. And I was so angry because the the treatment he was getting at the VA was the best the VA had to offer. I mean, let's, you know, let's be honest. It was the best the VA had to offer and it wasn't doing what needed to be done. And uh, I thought, you know, these guys aren't getting sober. They're killing themselves. I'm absolutely miserable from trauma. I want to die all the time. I don't know how I'm sober, but I am. And I said, there has to be something better. There has to be better treatment. And that I changed everything that I was doing in grad school. I got a different dissertation chair, different topic, everything, and started looking at addiction, at addiction and trauma and, um, and really looking at these complementary therapies. And then I was graced when I graduated that this addiction treatment facility created a position for me specifically 
to look at these complementary therapies so that we could bring best practices into that facility and others. And that's what I continue to do. And you're right. It is inspiring to me because we should be dead. And these are good people, you know, especially, you know, like the veterans that I work with. They're good people and they volunteered. They volunteered to for service to go into these places that don't necessarily want us, right? And to do jobs that they didn't expect that they would do. One of our stories in the book, I get, you know, I get choked up. One of our stories in the book, Robert, he's towards the end in the veteran section. And I want to say he's uh, chapter 16 or 17, I think 17. And uh, he is a, a combat, he, he flies choppers into combat zones and picks up the wounded. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm basically a, an ambulance driver. I'm like, you. F he flies in where there is shooting and picks people up. And he said to me in our interview, he said, you know, he has very bad PTSD. And he said, you know, I expected the war wounds. He, he expected the combatants, you know, whether, you know, uh, U.S. or, or uh, foreign combatants. He's like, I didn't expect the children. He said, I was stunned by what people purposely do to women and children in a war. And he was like, we picked up kids all the time. And the things that were done to them were just unspeakable. And that's what gave him the trauma because then he comes back, right? He comes back and he has his own children, you know, to deal with. And they have their own problems. You know, Mike, another one of our, uh, another one of our veteran stories, you know, he's out and he's, he's working special ops and he comes back and his son, one of his children is having tremendous difficulties because he's away, because he's away. And Mike has his own PTSD because he didn't expect to kill so many people, right? We aren't wired for that. We're not wired to just indiscriminately kill day in, day out. We're not wired. This is why we get trauma, to see uh, death and mutilation in the real. We're not wired for that. And so rock to recovery and music gives an expression to things that we can't give voice to. I couldn't say the word incest for two years in therapy. I would literally sit in the therapist of uh, 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 the word wouldn't come out, but I could write about it and I could sing about it and I could get it out in another way. And that's what music does. And that's what we tap into. You know, the beautiful thing about rock to recovery, we're not doing anything, you know, like, uh, uh, groundbreaking in the sense of there's nothing new here. We know scientifically how music, singing music and playing music in particular, affects the brain. We just capitalize on that through our program. We didn't invent anything. We didn't invent songwriting, right? We didn't invent singing. We just know how it affects the brain. And we're like, oh, well, if you put it into an addiction treatment or you put it into a trauma program, you put it into an eating disorders program, it gives people the opportunity in a safe, supported way to express what is otherwise unexpressible. One of the points that you made earlier, it's worth going back to, is the the notion that people who are experiencing trauma and who are addicted are trying to numb themselves. They're trying to 
not feel the the whatever is inside of them that is so terrible it's hard to even put into words. So they try to push it out of consciousness completely. Well, we literally in 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 psychotherapy in psychology we call it either dissociation or numbing, right? So there's fight, you know, uh, 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 fright, fight, flight, or freeze right? Just freeze. And freeze is when you're going to die. Freeze is there's, I can't fight my way out of this. There's no way for me to run from this. And so literally you lose feeling in your extremities, the blood all pools to support the major organs. You know, usually there's some sort of loss of not, if, if not loss of consciousness, but a, a, a distinct pulling back, the person will say, I will start seeing it from up here. Like when you hear people who've, you know, had uh, out of body experiences or near death experience, they start seeing the situation from above. They really pull away. For me, I describe it like this. When I was drinking and I would sit on the bar stool and I would feel my finger, right? I would press my finger, uh, my index finger of my left hand with my fingers of my right hand. And when they felt like wood, Right. When my index finger felt like wood, that's what I was going for. Numb. I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how to talk with you about this. I don't have the words to express it. I mean, keep in mind, my traumatic experiences started happening when I was six. And I didn't, even if I'd wanted to tell my parents, I didn't have the words. I didn't, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't have that ability to say, oh, you know, let me tell you what happened. I was just gone, just gone. And that's what we're going for many times. And you see this with opioid abuse. And, and you know, it's interesting because you'll see this in the porn industry a lot, that there's a lot of sexual abuse of, you know, people who, who go into who go into that industry very often have a, a sexual abuse in their background, particularly women. And also um, this numbing, you'll see a lot of people in that industry who are on opioids and it's a way to not have to feel, oh, you want me to do X, Y, Z? Great. Let me take this. Do people who um, want to become part of your program, do they need to be in a treatment center? Are there ways for people in the community who are not in treatment to access Rock to Recovery? Yes. Yeah, so it up until the pandemic, you did have to be in a treatment facility. That's true. Now, um, we offer uh, a variety of services. One of the things that we have, um, which we started during the pandemic is a weekly breathwork group. Um, it incorporates music into it, but it's really about breathing. Um, and that is virtual. The registration is, uh, on our, on our homepage, uh, rocktorecovery.org. And, um, you can just sign up for that and be part of it. It's donation based. You know, we, we ask for 12 bucks, but people pay what they can pay. And if it's nothing, we'd rather have you than, uh, you know, your money. If, if that's not something you can afford, uh, we also do, um, individual virtual sessions. We do, um, coaching as well. Well, I'm so gratified, Connie, to be able to share your work with our viewing audience. I think what you're doing is very powerful. It's very important. It deserves uh, to be more widely known. It's already widely known, but it could be 10 times uh, what it is. So, I, I want to, <laughs> as they say to people who have been in the military, thank you for your service. 
Well, thank you. I mean, it's, I, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to, uh, to do this and, um, and to really, you know, as you said before, to serve, you know, for whatever reason, I got lucky and I got opportunities and I was, you know, I was gifted a PhD, right? And I was, uh, allowed to go to a school that let me study whatever I wanted. I didn't have to study whatever, you know, my dissertation chair was interested in. They were like, what do you want to study? And I was like this. And they're like, great, go for it. You know, and then I got this opportunity to work at a treatment facility that said, Oh, you want to travel the world? Um, meeting with different researchers. Great. Here's the money to do that. Oh, you want to go to, to Athens and then to Rio? Okay. I mean, who gets that? These are gifts. And so there's something, there would be something wrong with me, right? In my opinion, if I didn't share them, right? I was gifted this information. I want to give it to other people because we're pulling people out of the sausage grinder. You know, every, uh, uh, listen, most of our people do get better and do have improvements, whether it's harm reduction, whether it's complete abstinence, what, you know, but we also every single, again, 30,000 people a year, you're going to lose a number. Every single week we hear about someone usually young, usually young who dies. They were in treatment, they were laughing and singing, and then they go out and they die. And I do want to say this about recovery, the most likely time to die is right after you've left treatment because you've been detoxed and your tolerance and your is gone, but your mind still thinks you use at the same level that you did before. And so these people die. We lost, we believe oh, just over 93,000 people to overdose in 2020. That's up from uh, about 72, 73,000 um, in uh, 2019. And uh, the only thing that we're happy about is we thought because of the pandemic, we researchers thought because of the pandemic, we might have hit 100,000. I mean, it is, there is a an addiction and mental health crisis right now that these kinds of programs can address. And what I love about music is you, you come to Rock to Recovery, we teach you a skill, right? It's great to have songwriting in your in your addiction treatment center, but then you can go out and you can use it some other place. You can use it in your life. You can journal. You can write songs. You can sing in your car. You can make your own band. You don't have to perform, you know, for the public. You don't have to go on tour. This is something, this is what I'm committed to, is giving people access to skills and resources that will improve the quality of their recovery. Because most of us can't make it on 12 Steps and maybe if we can afford it once a week psychotherapy, we need more support. And this is one of the tools that you can use. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned going on tour because uh, from what I know of the community of uh, professional musicians. It's a very rough life. There are uh, in and out of hotel rooms constantly and also uh, the constant uh, use and availability of drugs. So drug addiction is very high amongst musicians on tour. Well, we think that it's actually amongst creatives in general, because you're going to hear the same thing about painters. You're going to hear the same thing about writers. You're going to see that the thing about musicians is so I used to work before I got my uh, graduate degrees. I worked in the record business. Um, it's one of the places where I really found a heart for musicians. And um, it was back in the 80s and early 90s. It was a, a lot of substance abuse was tolerated. It is not tolerated anymore. You don't get to, unless you're the very, you know, upper echelon, like Prince, right? Prince died of substance abuse. 
And, but it's what happens is the problem is this, is that if someone in the band, particularly the lead singer, comes off the road, there are probably a hundred people who lose their livelihood because it's the rest of the band and all of the management and the road crew and, you know, it's a, and all of their families, right, lose that income. And so the idea is, well, just give them enough to, to keep them going, but they never get to come off the road. There's never an opportunity for them to get sober. During the pandemic, we were putting friends of ours in rehab, right, left and center. Hey, now's the time. Now's the time. You can't tour, go into treatment. So yeah, it's, it's, it's tremendous. Um, that, and, and it's usually the inner circle that says, you know, no, but we also have the opposite. You know, because it doesn't make it doesn't make money anymore. It's not cute anymore to be high like that. And uh, there's on every tour there. And now there's going to be someone who's sober. So if you read someone like Phil Bogard's story, who's our Nashville rep, who's in our, in the book, you know, he talks about the lead singer of his band, Ingram Hill, came over to his house through a recording, a CD at him. And said, I don't know what tour, what, what's, what, uh, concert you were playing, but you weren't playing the same songs we were. But instead of saying, you know, pick it up, right? Because, you know, uh, uh, you're the guitar player and you better whatever for the band. What he said was, um, I've been your friend since kindergarten and I'm not going to watch you die. You don't get to do this to me. Phil went into treatment the next, you know, next day or two and has been sober ever since. Well, that's a very powerful story. And uh, Connie, it strikes me that in our culture where suicide, uh, opiate addictions, uh, mental illness uh, of uh, so many different kinds is uh, on the rise, it seems to me that addressing those problems, which is what you're doing, is also a way of addressing larger social problems that we're facing in uh, in the environment and uh, the political uh, antagonisms that we're facing in, in our culture, I think, can all be addressed by what you're doing. Well, listen, mental health, I mean, that's what we're talking about is if, if we don't address a mental health issue, then those individuals become a drain on, uh, on, on society. So, you know, if I have someone that we're working with who, um, you know, was a worry to their family and they're, they're doing, you know, uh, they're not taking care of their physical health. Maybe they're shooting, you know, drugs and they have hepatitis and, and passing that around, you know, all sorts of different things. They're n not necessarily working. If we can get them, you know, to take care of their physical health, to take care of their family so that the kids aren't in, you know, being cared for by other family members or in the, in the support system, like these are things that we can take care of, you know, so there are a lot of social ills, but for me, I mean, that's all good. That's all bonus. That's all on the plus side. But it's really helping people who are people. It's a, to me, it's a human right to have access to quality mental health care. That's all we're talking about here is access to quality mental health care. I can't tell you the number of people, because a lot of drug addicts don't have insurance, who wait for months and months and months for a bed. And then they're kicked out after 17 to 19 days because that's what, you know, Medicaid will provide. 
That's what insurance is providing now. Forget 28 days. It's 17 to 19 days. Get them detoxed and then put them on, quote unquote, a lower level of care. Get them on outpatient treatment. The problem is, is that they have to fail out to go back to residential. Fail out usually means an overdose. It's a relapse. And an overdose, you know, with fentanyl or whatever can mean death. If, if I hear you correctly, you're suggesting that it may be at a subconscious level, they're overdosing in order to get back into more intensive treatment. No, I, I think it's that they just don't get the quality of care. We've known, we researchers have known for more than 40 years that really you're talking to get a good foundation and recovery. Most people struggling with severe addiction need 90 to 120 days residential, step down to um, uh, outpatient and um, uh, sober living with a good year of support. If you look at the 12-step programs, they are, you know, 30, 60, 90 days, you're counting every single day, right? I have 47 days. I have 72 days because that's the most critical time. Then you get to 100 days and they start counting by months, right? Three months, six months, nine months, right? Of, of recovery. And then in a year, you would have thought that they're the first man on the moon when someone gets a year. In fact, today I get to celebrate a friend who has one year of sobriety and we will bring the house down with applause because that's, you need to go through all those firsts. So to think that someone can detox and then buy a couple of outpatient classes, you know, and, and a 12 step program, most people just, they don't make it. They just don't. They need more support than that. And that's what I'm, I'm advocating for is, is a, an equitable and reasonable treatment program, not only for physical health problems, but for mental health problems, you know, and I love that we're seeing people really starting to stand up for mental health. I don't love that, um, you know, uh, uh, Simone Biles, for example, had to go through what she, you know, went through. But I do love that she had the courage to say, hey, guys, I'm not just a trick pony here to win, you know, something for you. I'm a person who's living my life. And what a disappointment for her that she wasn't able to participate as fully as she wanted to in that Olympics. She doesn't owe us anything, but she had the courage to stand up and say, you know what? My health comes first. I remember being a girl and watching Carrie Strug do that vault and having her told, you go back and you do another one. It's not right. It's not right. And people get to have the courage, you know, to show us, hey, Michael Phelps, I adore, you know, the way he stands up for mental. He's like, I need a therapy, guys. Use it. Use it. And we need a medical system that allows people access to that. Because what kills me is I get uh, messages all the time, all the time from parents, mostly who have young adult um, children who are in trouble and uh, they don't have any money. You know, they've already been sent them to treatment twice to things that probably weren't the best choices because they didn't know what to look for. And then, uh, you know, they already have a second on the house 
And they're like, we don't have any more money. And I'm like, there's only a, a handful of resources if you don't have more money. You know, that's not right. It is this, uh, my opinion, you know, my soapbox is it isn't right that the number one cause of bankruptcy in this country is medical expenses. I think we can do better. I think we can do better. Well, it does seem from what you're telling me in the absence of government funded programs that you're providing a, a sense of community that would otherwise be lacking for these people. Well, and that's why we have the nonprofit. So we have two companies, actually, Rock Recoveries, two sister companies that do exactly the same thing. One is a for-profit company. So places like where I worked um, as the director of research, right, then, um, you know, uh, they, they pay. And then we work with as many organizations as we can um, to, and we either give them services at a highly reduced rate, or we give them services we for free. We do ask that everybody pay something, you know, and sometimes that's not possible. And sometimes, you know, it, they pay 25 bucks. Well, I pr trust me, it costs us more than $25 to run a session. And we're like, okay, then you pay 25 bucks, you know, and we get to work with homeless groups and, um, you know, and we get to work with youth um, we are working right now to put the Rock to Recovery program in the schools because I think there is, you know, a mental health problem, particularly as we're coming back um, with the pandemic um, with among our youth. And so, you know, we have a cost and it's like, how close to that cost can you get? Great. And then we work on other funders and we give it away until we run out of resources. Well, I have to admire you for that. Uh, it's very consistent with my own philosophy here at New Thinking Aloud to give away as much as possible. Dr. Constance Scharf, thank you so much for being with me today. This has been a joy. Thank you. Thank you. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.